All right, this is the New Year's episode. It's let's not be recorded on New Year's, but you're listening <laughs> to it in the new year. And we have some exciting news. You have some exciting news. I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm opening you a new, a new look in a new location. Um, yeah. All right. So this is going to be the Croiler Gracie School of Dance and Jiu-Jitsu, right? <laughs> I don't dance, but yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. You excited? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Everything is, is set up and, and it's going. You know, the school will be open. I think we're shooting for February 1st to be to be the official grand opening. Um, that's barring, of course, any any mishaps. But yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. It'll be a new location. Um, you know, just just a new start, fresh start. Yeah. And it'll be it'll still be the same area still in Elkhart. So we'll still we won't be like losing. No, it's like an hour. Uh, so it's like a mile and a half north of where we are right now. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yeah, we're not we're not losing people because of this move unless they're just so fucking lazy that yeah, i mean a mile and a half yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but we uh yeah you, you, we just get like a place to kind of just build a your own yeah your own thing bigger and parking customize lot, you know yeah so it, it's exciting february 1st uh you can have like a grand opening yeah yeah, yeah. we'll do if everything's lined up we'll do an official grand opening we'll post post pictures and stuff and all that as soon as we we get them and if anyone listening wants to wants to come you are invited to come absolutely yeah and more the merrier yeah if you know anyone that could help with the grand opening like they're a dj they are a flame (laughs) like someone who eats like fiery swords or uh anything that's a good like party i I mean i would rather have flames open flames in the building but listen that's what grabs attention, Crawler. Okay. Because if the place burns down, that grabs even more attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> All right. Today's episode is episode 48. And it's on knee bars. Mm-hmm. So we've done leg locks episodes, leg lock episodes before. We've done, I think, straight ankle locks. Today we're gonna talk about a knee bar. What uh, distinguishes a knee bar from a lot of other leg locks? Ooh, um, I think other than other than ankle locks, um, knee bars are probably the old uh, oldest form of leg attacks. Oh, really? Yeah, I think other than ankle locks, knee bars are up there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and and it's, it's the knee bars have kind of an interesting history. I mean, I don't know how much how much studying you did, but judo, I think cuz they started in judo. That's when the, the first uh the first written record of a knee bar was in, was in judo in 1924, 25 one or the other. I'm not quite sure which now. Which it sounds it sounds silly like when I, we start talking about it because of the things that come out and won't sound super impressive, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know judo um, they have they had these like national judo tournaments, um, you know in Japan and the teams would be sometimes it would be a high school team it was like this high school versus that high school and you have a team of high schools that would get together and compete for the national championship sometimes it would be individual martial arts schools so 
you know, a legitimate judo school would enter that competition and they would compete with like high school, high schools, <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, that's like a fascinating thing. If you guys are ever interested in that, there's, there's a couple of books you could read on it that are, are very good. But So um, would they just slaughter these high schoolers? Sometimes, not always. So, um, oh, so the high schoolers and the because, underdogs sometimes would... Well, because remember, in America they would be the underdogs, but in Japan, martial arts are a requirement in, 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 in education. So some of these kids were doing it their entire life, you know? So by the time they got to high school, they were pretty decent. Mm. Um you know, do they have the same amount of mat time as somebody who's out training on their own? Probably not. It'd be kind of the difference between maybe um, a, a, you know, state level wrestler in high school versus a state level wrestler that also did, you know, wrestling clubs on the side and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think in like, there was a big rivalry. There's There were two guys in one team. I forget their names now. Um, and, and part of the reason why I'm saying I forget their names is because I will butcher their names and I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> but these two guys were, were part of one of the bigger teams, one of the, the better teams. And they were five or six time like consecutive national champion. And this team wanted to like beat them like this high school team wanted to beat them like they needed this thing to happen. Like those their driving driving force. Anyway, so before before we get into that aspect and how that came about with Nibar's. Um, I think in 1922, 21, 22, a few years earlier, the, the first Ashi was pulled off in a judo tournament and to ankle locks and, uh, the, the judo federation banned Ashi from judo. Like that was not allowed because it damaged the legs. However, that was the only one because you got to keep in mind because at this this stage ankle locks have been around but they're not hyper studied because they're they don't work well with the judo rules mm-hmm. but it was pulled off and it was banned well this these kids kids these this 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 group of people that are participating in this national judo tournament in 1924 25 um they came up with a knee bar and I believe they called it a Hiza Jujigatame, which is like a knee bar. Basically, it's like a straight knee lock or something like that. But anyways, they came up with this thing, and they didn't pull it off for a long time. And this tournament went on all day, and these teams are just going back and forth on wins. Everybody's scoring here and there. And and uh, in one of the, the longest matches in a tournament, I believe it was over an hour, um, because it's, the rules weren't exactly the same as they are in judo today. Um, one of the in that one match where it was over an hour the one guy did pull a knee bar <laughs> and he he tapped the opponent out big uproar the team that lost was saying that that was an ashigarami and that was illegal the referee didn't know how to judge it you know the team said hey we didn't do it this way it was kind of a different approach and it was this big it was this big like polemic like <laughs> uh, issue um so <laughs> it's it's not in my head though it's not close to an ashigarami so no but not close to ashigarami for you today mm-hmm. right show your dad a, a a regular ashigarami and an outside ashigarami tell him to tell you the difference true he won't know yeah <laughs> so you know the the first ashigarami pulling competition was just done a few years earlier and it was banned 
so you never have to worry about it and now there's this other weird leg thing that they're doing you know so everybody's like up in arms and and anyways so um so then the judo federation banned knee bars like the next year <laughs> yeah so knee bars have kind of an interesting are they still story. banned in judo do you know I, I believe all leg attacks are banned in judo okay yeah yeah i don't think you can even grab the legs anymore like because you used to be able to grab the legs for throws i don't think you can even do that anymore that's a fascinating background story for the knee bar and jiu-jitsu and judo i didn't know in jiu-jitsu does it does it have as controversial of a of a past not specifically knee bars leg locks right and we, we right. have a whole episode on that but yeah yeah no it's, it's just it's just interesting that you know people give a lot of grief to the brazilians you know 20 years ago for hating on leg locks but the judo the judokas you know 100 years ago behaved the same way in jiu-jitsu tournaments today are knee bars are they they're not allowed they're for, allowed for yeah. white belts no and? they're all for purples and up Okay. Straight knee bars, anyways. And why is, what's the reason for that? Why is it okay for straight knee bars? Or why is it okay for purples and above? Yeah, what's the concern for the um, younger people? Is it like a heel hook where it's... No, not necessarily like a heel hook. It's just, you know, you're, you're very in tune with, with your upper body and with your arms and your fingers and your hands and, and you know where it hurts and it doesn't hurt. You're not as in tune with your lower body. Generally speaking, people are more likely to try to resist a knee bar than they are an arm bar um, because it hurts less. A knee bar is weird because for, for me, at least when someone's going for it, there's a point where it, it's extended and then it feels like a really good stretch. Right. And then it breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, I've never let it transition to the break. But yeah, at the limit, I, I'll, I'll go, oh, that feels good. And then I'm like, but I should stop now. Right. Where an arm bar just hurts. <laughs> so people are more likely to fight knee bars than their arm bars. You know, you get people with less experience. They may try to fight out of things that they shouldn't and hurt themselves. You know, we have to keep in mind that the rules in tournaments, they're not in place to restrict your jiu-jitsu, but they're in place to primarily protect you now i will agree that some rules are outdated but but i do think that limiting which kinds of submissions at certain levels makes sense like the knee bar shouldn't be done by people you know they're blue belts in a competition aspect in a school i don't care but in a competition i don't know that the person applying or the person defending have enough jujitsu maturity to defend it properly sure now let's step back and just go over the mechanics and describe the knee bar to people listening. Okay, so so knee bars, um, generally speaking, <coughs> the mechanics are exactly the same as an armbar. Um, we we need to create an anchor at the end of the lever, which is usually the the heel or the ankle. Um, we need to control the opposite end of the lever, which is usually the hips, and um, our hips, our own hips, are lined up near the opponent's knee and what we're trying to do is since we have an anchor in each end of the lever is to push our hips through the kneecap causing the knee to hyperextend okay super straightforward nothing nothing fancy about it are there many variations on knee bars absolutely because there's different ways of anchoring yourself both on the um 
further end of the lever, like the ankle, you can anchor it up there with a toe hold. You can anchor up there by holding, physically holding the heel. You can hug the heel. You can pull the heel down. Some people like to pull the heel up um, and you can anchor the uh, the far side, the opposite side of the lever, meaning the hip in different ways too. You can triangle, you can cross your feet. You can have different uh, triangle f- configurations. Um, you can sometimes incorporate their legs into entangling their hip. Um, and then even on how you finish, you know, the knee bar, you can finish with a straightforward, you know, hip through knee motion. You can also do a compound knee bar where you place the opponent's heel behind your armpit. So now you can pull the heel back as you drive your hips forward and so on and so forth. Do you use knee bars often? Yes. Not as often as other leg locks, but I do use them often enough at least once a week. Do you find yourself using them with a certain type of person, a certain like style of rolling, or is it just, if it comes up, you're, you're going if for it? If it comes up, it goes, I go for it. Um, knee bars are not my favorite leg lock. Um, I prefer heel hooks and ankle locks um, and asthma locks, but um, the the knee bar is, a, is a, a, if you are adept at it, it's a great way to threaten an off balance on the opponent because you can threaten any bar, cause them to behave differently because of that threat. And then you can transition into other leg locks or you can transition into the knee bar as the opponent moves, which is my favorite way of doing it. You know, if somebody's trying to be somebody like you who moves really well, I like to trap you as you move to get into the knee bar. Now, doing that on me makes me think about how much of an effect does the disparity in height or the size difference between you and you and your opponent affect hitting a knee bar on them? Um, like, would I? I feel like I would struggle more to hit a knee bar on you than you hitting one on me. Well, but that's true of anything. I'm bigger, right? I mean, like. But for that knee bar, if you if I have this long tree trunk leg. This long dancer leg, this long graceful leg, <laughs> it's it's always shaved for some reason. I don't, I did, I never expected you to be someone who shaved your legs, but you do, and they're smooth, and so <laughs> they're not smooth. <laughs> um, well, the reality is you have to adjust, right? I mean, ultimately, what you need to control is a point beneath the knee and a point above the knee, and you need to be able to drive through the knee for a knee bar. The further away from the fulcrum, from the, from the, the, the further out, the bigger the lever, the better. Meaning if you, if you're my height and you can lock your legs around my hips and hug my ankle, your, your lever is very, very big and it's easy to break it because you're shorter. You're going to be limited by how big the lever can be. Right. So you, when you, if I'm locked at your hips. And, uh, you're going to be my, like at my calf. Yeah. Yeah. Your knee will be like at my, like by my head and shoulder. Right. So you need to adjust that. Right. So as mm-hmm. you move your hip in line with my knee, you're, you may be hugging my calf and you may be triangle as an example, my hamstring instead of my hip. Can you break it? Absolutely. You can break it. Is it as effective? Probably not. Um, but that has more to do with the, um, your ability to deliver pressure than the effectivity of the knee bar. Think of a twig, right? If you have a very long twig, it's easy to snap it in half. If you have a very short twig, breaking that thing is very, very tough. It has nothing to do with how thick the twig is, it just has to do with how long it is. 
because you're shorter, your twig is always going to be a little bit smaller too. But in that analogy also, what's making it easier is you are farther apart. Right. It's easier to, it's easier for a guy my size to break my knee than a guy your size to break your knee. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But because there's a mismatch, you can only cover so much of my leg. Right. So you can only deliver so much pressure to that leg. So as I adjust on a leg like yours, how do I, as I, let's say, climb my upper body, like higher up your leg, how do I do that but and not give up what I need at the base? What I would do in your position is I would do a compound knee bar where I would put the heel, um, my heel behind your armpit. Okay. And then my knee can can because of that because you now have a downward force and a forward force you can have my knee be a little bit further up on your hip almost to your belt line Mm -hmm. so that would make my leg shorter right and it you would be able to add more power as you can pull and push into the knee bar are there for smaller people listening are there any guys that you would say look at this person trying to like examples of little guys hitting knee bars Oh, man. It's a specific example, but... You know, uh, I'm trying to think. A lot of the little littler guys, um, they're, they're so focused on transitions and movement that they don't necessarily submit a lot. Crone has a couple knee bars. I know that Jeff Glover has a few leg locks. There are a couple of guys here and there. The Meows do some, some leg locks here and there. Um, the Nicky Ryan, may, you may see him at a knee bar every once in a while. I think, although he always transitions into heel hooks. From Maybe that. what we can do is, I know you don't like videos, but <laughs> for our Instagram account, we could maybe I'll, I'll try to hit a knee bar on you. Yeah. So, you know, you talk about being a difficult for you to hit it on me. It is also harder for me to hit it on you. No, you're not getting any sympathy from me. All right. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Well, it's also a little bit harder because... You know, my legs are so big that by the time I control your hip, my hip may not be in the proper position. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, the, it goes both ways. The mismatch causes us to have to modify the submission in different ways. Okay. Do you, when do you teach knee bars to students? Do you, how long do you wait to show that? It's not in the white belt course. No, not in the strictly white belt course, no. But in our nogi class, we cover them fairly early. Even even the beginners that are in the nogi class will see knee bars. Um, generally speaking, the bulk of it comes out when you're a blue belt. We do a lot of it. As soon as you hit your blue belt, pretty much I teach every submission at that point. Before we end this one, for the new person who's looking to start to mess around with knee bars, what two, three things do they just need to focus on most importantly so they oh, have man. at least the basics um, down? I think I think the, the biggest thing to focus with, think of a knee bar as more of a enhancer or a technique that can create beneficial chaos, not so much as a submission. And, and I'll talk about the whole enhancer example here in a little bit, but Think of it more as a way to cause your opponent to behave in, in to behave and react to the knee bar in such a way that benefits your game. Can you get a submission off of it? Absolutely. But if you think of them more as a means to to create positive reaction that benefits your game, I think you'll be better off um, conceptually. Anyways, if you're looking at particular steps, um, 
ensure that you have the proper anchor at either end of the lever, whatever anchor that is, it, it may be up to the particular situation. Sometimes a toe hold will work, sometimes hugging the ankle, sometimes putting the ankle behind your armpit is better. Um, sometimes crossing your feet or triangling your legs, or sometimes you don't even need all that. Sometimes you just pinch your knees. Um, it all, it's all the, the situation dependent and, and learning when to do what anchor is very, very valuable. And then um, as far as finishing goes, understanding the mechanics that generally speaking in knee bars, you're trying to drive your hips through their kneecap um, is beneficial as well. Um, going back to the previous point, the previous point of the enhancement, like um, knee bars and toe holds are the highest percentage leg locks in, in um, IBJJF tournaments. And I say IBJF tournaments to specify that because not it's not the same in every tournament. But in IBJF tournaments, toe holds and knee bars are, are super high percentage because of the ease of entry and the fact that you can combine heel hooks and sorry heel hooks, but you can combine toe holds and knee bars together to where you create this synergetic um, property where to defend the toe hold the general approach is to extend your legs and use your free leg to pummel the, the foot free. While in extending your legs, you're exposing yourself to knee bar. So if I have a knee bar set up and a toe hold, now you're kind of stuck because extending your legs puts you in knee bar. Bending your legs, which is a, again, general approach to defending knee bar, if you bend your leg, you put yourself in a toe hold because it allows everything to be contracted. So, um, for IBJF tournaments, knee bars and toe holds are a predominant. Um, I don't like either or because they're they're manipulating the rules. There are better, more effective forms of finishing that you can transition from a knee bar into, let's say, a honey hole or an outside ashigarami and attack into heel hooks and things like that. But for IBJF purposes, toe hold and, and knee bar is a very good combo. That's it. That's a wrap. That's our knee bar lesson for the day. Now we're going to move over to a listener email. This email comes from Tom. Tom says, hey guys, thanks for the show. I was wondering what Croiler's take is on competing, whether it's necessary or in what ways might it be necessary versus ways it might be unnecessary. Thanks in advance. Um, do I think competing is necessary? No. Some of the toughest guys I've grappled against are guys that have never competed. Some of the guys that have competed a lot, you know, even even world champions may not be the toughest guys around, you know. Um, tournament wins and losses, uh, you should take those with a grain of salt. Sometimes the championship match happens in the first round. Sometimes uh, you're so far above your competition that it's not fair. You know, like, like here's an example. You know, you can... You can have a blue belt that's been training for six years and you can have a, a blue belt that's been training for one year. Mm-hmm. Like that is a gigantic. Those are completely mismatch. different people. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is not the same thing. So, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Does that mean the six year blue belt is the better blue belt? You can say that. You can also say that maybe the six year blue belt should be a purple belt, you know, and then that same thing happens to him because now he's the brand new baby purple belt against, you know, the four or five year purple belt, you know. So um, Gary Tonin actually made a really good point um, on a post. It kind of illuminated. He says, you know, the problem with 
belt requirements is not the minimum, but the maximum. There is no maximum in a belt level, right? So, you know, in jujitsu, they say, oh, you got to be, you know, a pro belt for a minimum of two years before you move on. Well, what about a maximum? Right. What if you're per belt for 10 years? Nobody's got to, you don't have to be promoted. You don't have to accept the next belt. You can be the king of purple belts. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and be a 15 year old experienced purple belt. You know what I mean? Like it mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't. Um, so, so tournaments, wins and losses are, so you take it with a grain of salt. You see it all the time with little kids. Sometimes you have a, a you know, a kid who's nine or 10 years old that started training at your school that has, zero physical ability has never done a martial art in his life is very technical but but is just shy and 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 doesn't know you know how to deal with pressure and then he fights he grapples a a a wrestler a kid who's nine or ten years old same age as is who's been wrestling since he was five like that's a big difference oh it's only three or four years yeah but it's three or four years Mm -hmm. you know um so do i think it's necessary no um you know, you, and if you do compete, there's nothing wrong with competition, but take it with a grain of salt. There are guys out there who are incredible game winners who know how to play the system very well to win, but they're not the best jiu-jitsu in a competition, right? Um, now, are there benefits to competing? Absolutely. I think everybody should compete um, if they have the desire. Like, if you ever thought, maybe I want to compete, you should do it at least once um, because it's a... Not only do you learn to push yourself so you can train harder, eat better, sleep better, you know, uh, work out and all those things. Um, I think the experience of the adrenaline and of the anxiety and nerves and everything that you feel up to the competition to if you lose learning that the world did not end, you know, your friends are still there people still love you you're not like they're not (laughs) taking you to be hung you know um that that experience can be exhilarating it can be um it can be one of those things that feels very good to to be reassured that your team likes you regardless of how you perform your family members are still there um and if you win the knowing that you that you won that your training is good and it is paying off is is a reward in and of its own but I think the the biggest reward of of having of pushing yourself to compete, if you have any desire to do so, if you don't have any desire, if you're like I don't want to, then don't. But if you ever have the thought, you know, the the main win may just be to step up. You know, my grandfather used to say that he would step onto the mats so that he wouldn't lose because the victory for him was seeing if he could do it, if he had the the courage to step up on the mats. Mm-hmm. That was the win. That was the real battle, the battle within yourself. And I think that's the battle that most people struggle and the battle where most people don't compete is because they're too afraid to step up. Right. So that that's the real one. So if you have, there's huge, huge pluses in competing. There are some negatives to competing as well. So um, the negatives of competing are you can very much uh, influence your game to benefit a rule set, and and that's that's a that's not good. That's something I I spent quite a bit of time talking to Paul Elliott about when I was at his school doing a seminar. You know, your jujitsu should be so complete and so wholesome that um, regardless of rule set, regardless of uh, gi or no gi, uh, it should be applicable and it should be heavily applicable. 
minor modifications to address certain rules, sure. But it can happen to where you heavily modify your training for a specific rule set and your juice growth gets hindered because as an example, heel hooks are not allowed in IBJJF. So if I want to be an IBJJF world champion, I will never spend the time practicing heel hooks. It doesn't make sense. And now my jiu-jitsu is no longer wholesome. My jiu-jitsu now lacks heel hooks. You know, um, certain styles of sumigayashi in, in IBJF are illegal because they allow, they allow for head stacking and that's a no-no. So now I don't practice that. So now I don't learn to do that, you know. Uh, so you have to be careful if you're a competitor not to modify your training for a competition. You know, uh, not to influence your overall jujitsu for a competition. Now, sure, a few weeks before a tournament, you might want to train more like that rule set to be ready for it, but never be your default setting. That's very good advice. So, Tom, take note, and everyone else thinking about competing, I think that's good for all of us to hear. Ending the episode, do you have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't generally make one. Um, I have one. What's that? It's to start my own school. Yeah. And to take yours down. Do it. It's going to be called Turtle Jiu-Jitsu. Oh my God, get out. I'm done. It's it's going to be... Just, it's over. It, no, it's going <laughs> to... My goal is, oh to, my is, to, is to meet your school in competition oh. with my elite force of students, and we'll tap every single one of you through so you, tur- different turtle uh, see, you entries. See, you see how I talk about like influencing Jiu-Jitsu because of competition? <laughs> the whole turtling phenomena, that's because of competition, and it's garbage. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see what happens when I start my own school and in December of next year, we'll have yeah. this conversation. This would be like Ilio Fada. Yeah. You know, <laughs> except, you know, I'm right. <laughs> All right, well, everyone have a fantastic new year and thank you for listening. We had a good first, 2019 first year of the podcast. We enjoyed it. And here's to 2020. 